Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Monday, the 12th of February, coming up on the program. Stage 6, the crisis intensifies. Was there anything new in the EFF manifesto? Is multi-choice now facing a hostile takeover and increasing concern over the NHI bill from medical benefits providers? Despite upbeat improvement assurances by government, severe load shedding is likely to continue until midweek at least after ESCOM suffered a mass breakdown of power station units due to boiler tube leaks. Commentator Nick Headley is the founder of the Progress Playbook, a news and analysis platform focusing on policies and projects that are succeeding in driving sustainable development, and he is at the top of the program today. Nick, let's start with this. The ANC Secretary-General claiming at the weekend that stage six load shedding is as a result of sabotage he's calling for more security security to be added to power stations are you buying any of that hi jeremy um i mean it's obviously tough to verify but what is quite clear is that uh, sort of leading politicians are looking for any excuse to uh, sort of shift the blame but their own performance so uh, it's obviously hard to just dismiss it outright, but there's no direct mm. evidence of that. And um, it's it's very, I would be skeptical. I want to wade into this whole issue of boiler tube leaks in just a moment. But let's talk about the, the language, first of all. How credible are you finding assurances from government and ESCOM right now that we are turning a corner? That doesn't seem to be the case. No, it doesn't. So the latest stats from ESCOM on uh, ESCOM's fleet of power stations shows the energy availability factors actually even worse than it was at this point last year. And the significance of that is that we now have Kusile units one, two, and three back. So we should be, we've got a big boost in our um, availability of supply. So if the fact that we worse than at this point last year means the rest of the fleet is in a much worse state. So there's not much evidence to support the fact that things are moving in the right direction. Maybe we've slowed down the decline, but um, we're definitely not sort of quickly moving back to a very healthy um, state of our fleet. So these breakdowns are going to keep happening, unfortunately. And slowing the decline also means we will just as you've rightly said, just lurch from crisis to crisis. Exactly. Um, the thing is, these are really mostly the fleet is consists of very ancient plants that have 
not been well maintained and been run far too hard because there weren't other options available, so they had to always be on, uh, which means they, they haven't had the care and attention that they deserve. Um, and we still just haven't brought on that wave of new supply that we've desperately needed for about 20 years now. Um, so as long as there's a, a huge supply deficit and we're relying exclusively on very old plants, this is this is going to be the norm. I got a sense when I read the statement from ESCOM this weekend that perhaps they were a little bit more forthcoming in what the problem was, referencing these boiler tube leaks at the power stations. What are you able to tell us about that, Nick, if you can, and what does it say about the maintenance and management of these facilities? Um, yeah, so boiler tube leaks has been a, a problem with ESCOM for, for a long time. Um, it's partly got to do with the use of substandard coal, um, but also, again, just a, a lack of real downtime of these plants, which should be taken out of service quite regularly to be um, completely refurbished and uh, all those parts uh, replaced and, and fixed. Um, but that's obviously, there's not much room for that. Uh, it does look like um, planned maintenance has increased a little bit over the summer months, which is normal. Um, but it's still not where it kind of needs to be to completely sort of revitalize the fleet. And the problem is there's no space really to do that. Um, so it's it's kind of an age-old problem, this boiler tube leak issue. Where should we be right now then? Um, well, unfortunately, you can't really expect a, a very old fleet of power stations to be operating at really high capacity factors. It's a it's really wishful thinking, um, the target of sort of 60 to 70 percent EAF with a fleet, seven of seven of the 15 power stations are scheduled to reach their normal end of life in the coming years by 2030, or at least start the process. Um, so expecting them to sort of deliver really high availability factors is, is kind of unrealistic. Again, it all just comes back down to um, the desperate need for new supply, which is something we've needed and been warned about for 20, 25 years, but just haven't mm. quite cracked that yet. Nick, you spoke about uh, new supply and perhaps the tardiness in that respect in light then of this current crisis. Um, why do you think we're not making sufficient progress on the sustainable energy front? Um, well, there is, on the I guess, one silver lining side of things is there is quite a big wave of projects that are due to come online from sort of second half of this year now and that's thanks to the that new rules allowing basically allowing the private sector to invest in their, in their own power projects and um, that's starting to kind of come to fruition now in the second half of the year there should be a fair amount of new capacity online which should help um, but again we've just kind of in 2015, we stopped the renewable energy procurement rounds um, for really ideological reasons, and we haven't really got it going properly again. We've had sort of a couple of failed attempts and badly designed procurement rounds, but it's been very unambitious. Um, and now the latest version of the draft version of the energy plan even scales back on our procurement plans, which means the sort of urgency there to bring on new supply is really not there. It's, it's left up to the private sector now and there's huge appetite to bring on new supply. 
But again, then we're running into problems of underinvestment in grid capacity, which limits the amount that can come online. Um, so it is happening. Uh, it's just these things do take take time to materialize. You tweeted uh, an hour or so ago that South Australia's electricity mix in the past three months of 2023, 82% wind and solar. You also spoke about California's electricity mix, renewables meeting 100% of demand at one point. Then in the evening, big batteries injecting up to 5.3 gigawatts onto the grid. Uh, Again, we have abundant sunshine in this country. Is the problem that we're not moving at that kind of pace because we simply get bogged down in, uh, in procurement red tape? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, there's clearly a sort of ideological um, desire to stick with the old technologies, and that's absolutely fine. There's, I think there's a misperception that it's an either-or. You either have to quickly shut down your coal fleet and sort of shift to new technologies, or not at all, and that's not the case. Um, all of the sort of least-cost models in South Africa show there's, we shouldn't be shutting down our coal plants ahead of schedule. We need to keep using them as long as we can, but we desperately need to be moving in the direction that the rest of the world is, which is rapidly scaling up wind and solar, which is by far the cheapest source of new generating capacity available. Um, so the rest of the world's moving really fast. Um, South Africa, unfortunately, is is not, and that's that's largely because of just ideological I think, a desire for state control um, of, of the power supply system. Well, as we have this conversation sitting at uh, stage five at the moment, and uh, the anger and frustration among many South Africans is palpable. Nick Headley, as always, thank you very much indeed for that very sober-minded assessment. I do appreciate it. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. All right, let's move from power now to politics. The EFF manifesto launched this weekend, focusing on land, jobs and load shedding. Well, was there anything new or surprising? And I'm wondering if this manifesto has the potential to give the party a polling jump. Political writer and commentator Dr. Ibrahim Harvey is with us now. And first of all, Ibrahim, the EFF saying very confidently it's gunning for two million votes uh, in Gauteng and in KwaZulu-Natal, one million apiece. Uh, very confident, very very bullish. Uh, is, that, uh, is that possible? It's in the realm of speculation and conjecture. It's necessarily by the nature of voting, is, and it's particularly at this moment in South Africa, you know, things are very combustible, everything's collapsing, and it's precisely why, for various reasons, I think the EFF targets the black youth, and if you look at the heart of this economic unemployment crisis, it resides with the very social basis of the EFF. I suspect, really, if you look at all the people that have been joining them, etc., I suspect that the EFF of all the opposition parties is going to do relatively the best in the election. And do not exclude the possibility, I'm telling you, and many people will argue probability, that the EFF does so well that it supplants the DA as the official opposition. I do not exclude that possibility at all. If you look at the way the country is going at them, everything is collapsing. And the youth in particular, I think, would be driven towards and embrace a more radical leaning agenda, which is precisely what the EFF is offering. It's very, I mean, do you know that for a year, he's been saying to the people, we are the government in waiting. We're going to be the, you know. So I don't think this, uh, it's just outlandish, this 
positive uh, vibe, confidence. I think that EFF is going to do very well in this election. Do you think the ANC is aware of this? And if so, how does it fight back? No, the ANC is acutely aware. The ANC is more worried about the EF than the DAS one-shot back. The Malaba is a child of the ANC, you know, and you can see what's going on with the ANC and Malema and uh, in the uh, local government, uh, you know, uh, coalition government. The whole, uh, there's a rapprochement that's been happening in particular municipalities between the EFF and the, and the ANC. But I can tell you, uh, if there's one opposition party that gives the ANC sleepless nights, it's the EFF, to my mind, more than the DA. So these are the guys uh, you need to look out for, uh, Jeremy, and really mm. I will not be surprised at all. You know, they scored about 10.5%, 11% in 2019. I think you're looking at 15, 20 and plus, and even the possibility they, that they might dislodge they're going all out. You know, they, they really believe in themselves, Jeremy Malema and the EFF really believe it's not just propaganda cheap that they're going to walk into uh, uh, union buildings. I mean, it's a bit exaggerated, but I think uh, don't underestimate. I think uh, 20 plus is reachable mm. percentage. And then uh, we've got to see how the DA does with right. its uh, moonshot pack coalition. You know, So they've really got their tail up then. Was there anything particularly innovative or surprising in the EFF's manifesto that was launched at the weekend that then distinguishes it from previous years? Well, you know, the manifesto, it's a considerably redistributionist uh, manifesto. But the one big thing I mentioned yesterday that, and I have to repeat it because it's such a huge issue. I think Malema and the EFF are very uh, naive about we have massive fiscal constraints. This is the biggest, I mean, do you know what, I mean, unprecedented cutbacks in public expenditure and investments over the past few years, it's now at the worst. Because of the depth of our crisis, Jeremy, otherwise sound proposals in a manifesto, I think to implement what the EFF is calling for is going to be terribly difficult. I, I don't see that happening. I don't think they've been very mindful of the massive financial constraints and budgetary constraints. You can see what's happening with the Ministry of Finance. Um, the unions are crying foul when there's wage negotiations. There is less money around in the fiscus than ever before in this post-apartheid dispensation, mm. Jeremy. And this is my concern. You know, but they will do what they're doing with the manifesto because they want to attract a very disgruntled black youth constituency. You know, Jeremy, it's terrible. You're talking 11, 12 million people unemployed. It's uh, it's just a bloodbath to use Jolene Zema Vavi's coinage about uh, how bad the unemployment crisis is. And that is the social base of the EFF. So it will come out, you know. Very radical sounding, as you can see in that uh, manifesto. But uh, whether it's going to be implementable, you know, uh, is another thing. And, and especially what they also underestimate is the drive towards privatization. You look at what's happening to ESCOM, and it's a reflection. They're also naive about that. I mentioned it on TV. The EFF underestimates very seriously what the catastrophic failures of SOEs in the hands of the ANC corruption incompetence has done, Jeremy, to the very notion of public enterprise, public sector, and, uh, you know, all the good can, that can come from public provision of basic services. The SOEs has really uh, did serious damage to the whole notion mm. of state stroke public ownership.
And I don't think they take that into account, you know, the EFF. If you look at the manifesto, it also includes restrictions on foreign land ownership and promises of zero company taxes in special economic zones. Ibrahim Harvey, do you think these policies might affect South Africa's attractiveness to foreign investors? No, it's a foregone conclusion that the answer to your question is yes. I mean, already look what's happening, you know, and they call the shots, Jeremy, you know, investors have very uh, disproportionate power, you know, because of lots of global factors, you know, and there's no doubt. I mean, the investors are scared like hell of the EFF. They'd rather have the ANC in power, you know, because if you look at the economic policies and Becky said is in his last State of the Nation address, ANC has been kind to big business, etc. The, the investing community is terribly scared of the EFF, and I don't think you can see the way the EF, I think they're a bit unrealistic. The way they deal with foreign investors and, you know, a lot of the sentiments are fine, but I think they're being impractical and uh, I think it's likely that you can have foreign investments declining <laughs> furthermore if the EFF has to do considerably well and especially if they displace the DA as the official opposition. You know, it's it's radical talk, but we're in an unprecedented uh, crisis in this mm. country and that's why the youth are attracted to the EFF because it's radical sounding slogans, proposals. People are struggling like hell, Jeremy. We have the worst, worst socioeconomic crisis, hunger, poverty, malnutrition. This country is just collapsing all over. And that's why voices and uh, places like the EFF will attract. And uh, right. I mean, look at the unemployment rate, the highest ever in entire history of South Africa currently. And who, who does it eat hardest? The black African youth, which is that very uh, social basis of the EFF. A very blunt and uh, honest assessment. Ibrahim Harvey, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Well, let's move on. And the future of media giant MultiChoice is still seemingly up in the air. The French media company Canal Plus is determined to buy the shares it does not already own. And Google Lurie, founder and editor of Tech Financial, says this puts its DSTV arm in a spot of bother. His words. MultiChoice's management, led by Calvo Moella, now faces the reality that the French company's bid has effectively, he says, become an attempt at a hostile takeover. Google Lurie, a very warm welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm interested to find this out. Why do you believe that Canal Plus is so determined to increase its stake in multi-choice? Thank you, Jeremy. I think they're determined because they've been building a position in multi-choice for quite some time now in the South African-based company. And when the South African company rejected their offer to buy shares in the business, Canal Plus decided surprisingly to increase their shareholding 35%, knowing very well that uh, acquisition of the shares is going to trigger a mandatory offer, meaning that they don't want to back down on buying this company. What do you think makes MultiChoice an attractive company? I think MultiChoice is a good asset. Maybe as a student of history, Jeremy, we need to go back a bit and explain. When MultiChoice was owned by Master, it was unbundled, meaning that MultiChoice was the best asset for Nasdaq for quite a long time. It built value for them. And when Nasdaq decided to become an internet company, they felt that multi-choice can stay on its own because it's got a long history in South Africa in terms of being in the paid TV space where there's a lot of potential. We can go and talk about other issues that have unraveled in the few years. So 
Canal Plus then is being very persistent in its efforts to acquire a larger stake. If this goes ahead and it is, as you're suggesting, a hostile takeover, what do you think the longer-term strategic goals might be? In other words, where is the potential? The potential is in the African market. That's why Canal Plus is coming to Africa to say that one this giant that is operating in the continent because um, MultiTrust is trying to transform to become a tech company. Why are they doing that? If you look at the linear tape television, it's under stress in the African market. It doesn't mean that it's dying. It means that a lot of youngsters, as we know, the African continent is dominated by young people or the Gen Z. So basically, it means most of them are moving to on-demand uh, TV, like your streaming TV, your Netflix, your Showmax, your Amazon Prime. So Canal Plus is believing that there's a potential for multi-choice to grow in the market. Is it the right approach or not the right approach? That's what I'm questioning. So it's completely a technology-led play then? That's correct, because for now, multi-choice has been a linear operator in the paid television space for a long time. But because of conditions and the market conditions that are changing, they are moving into the digital space where they need to attract more customers. While they are doing that, they need to look at the adjacent market where they can find a bit of revenue diversification, like moving into betting, moving into fintech. But that's a difficult thing to do. It's not easy if management is not focused. So how do you think multi-choice is going to play this then? I think multi-choice for now, the board has rejected the bid, but I'm a bit worried about the management of multi-choice. And I'll explain why I'm worried about the Jeremy. Multi-choice management decided to leave Randbeck and go to Dubai and be based there. We all don't know why they move into that space and believe that they can grow an African company from the Middle East or the Arab world. It was very strange for me. So I think for now, the multi-choice management, it seems as if it doesn't believe in its own strategy. But multi-choice on its own, it's got a plausible strategy that it can unleash to the African market. Why am I saying that? The African internet space is changing. A lot of African companies, so uh, MTN, your liquid, is investing massive amounts of money into fiber into the rest of the African market. Once that strategy has been rolled out by these companies, multi-choice tends to benefit in terms of delivering quality on-demand services to this young growing population in the African market. Why will you sell to Canal Plus? So what do you think Canal Plus's next move is going to be? Going to be will it increase its offer? I think, I think they're not going to increase their offer because they've already offered the premium of 40%. It's going to be tough for them to do so. But what complicates the matters for Canal Plus is that multi-choice is already in a strategic relationship with an American company called Comcast in Showmax. They own 30% of Showmax. So this complicates the whole strategy that Canal Plus has been pursuing. Maybe what I'm suspecting is that Canal Plus, they made this offer because they were worried about the moves that they made by Comcast, that maybe they want to acquire the entire multi-choice. What do you think uh, shareholder response to this is going to be? So that, let me talk about institutional investors at the moment. We try to get into the PIC, which owns about 12%. They are mom on the transaction, meaning, meaning that the PIC is still evaluating it at stake, what do they need to do? Do they need to sell or do they need to hold their stake? But I think it would be a better option for them not to sell. And I'll explain why am I saying that, Jeremy. When we go back to history of mergers and acquisition in Africa, 
they are littered with similar transactions. Where we have seen companies like Bain, which is a private equity firm, it came in South Africa and promised a lot of things by buying Adcon. What happened? History shows us that that transaction failed. You had Walmart, which came and tried to which bought um, a, a, a company in South Africa, Matmat, and they promised us a lot of things to grow them in the rest of Africa. And mind you, Walmart is the biggest retailer in the world, but according to my analysis, that failed business in South Africa to challenge our own local operations. That's why I'm saying in my article, Jeremy, that it's better for multi-choice to pursue its own strategy because most of the successful companies in South Africa who are moving to the rest of the African market, they are based in South Africa. They don't have a big brother behind them. And it goes back to my first point, that when multi-choice was released, by masters, they were giving them freedom to shine and grow on their own. Somebody might argue and say, Google, you are wrong, because if MultiChoice is moving into the multi-platform services, they will need scale, they will need investment. Companies like MTN, they went to the market to get their money to go into the rest of Africa. MultiChoice can do that. That's why I believe, and I'll say this, the multi-choice management, for them to move into Dubai, that's where the problem begins because right. they only attracted they only attracted a hostile takeover instead of building a shareholder deal. All right, Google Lori, thank you very much indeed. I appreciate it. You're listening to MoneyWeb at midday. Now, it seems we might be getting closer to the signature of the NHI bill and that the flourish of a pen, healthcare in South Africa, would change forever. There is growing concern, though, in the medical benefits space. That certainly is increasing. I want to give you uh, another view on this. Gary Feldman is with us now, Executive Head of Healthcare Consulting at NMG Benefits. Gary, welcome to you. Um, What's your sense? Do you think the president is going to sign this bill anytime soon? Good afternoon, Jeremy, and good afternoon to the listeners. Jeremy, yeah, I think at this late stage, the president doesn't have a choice. I don't think he can send it back to the parliamentary committee. I think he'll have egg on his face. Um, But I don't think the listeners should be too concerned about that. Um, If he does sign it once he's found his pen, um, I think there's still a lot of water to flow into the sea before we actually see a change in the healthcare environment in South Africa. So let's talk about that water if we can. Are you suggesting that it's not immediately going to impact the business models or the strategy of existing medical benefits companies? Absolutely, Jeremy. Um, If you look at once it's been signed, um, there are still a lot of different legislation that needs to be adjusted as well. Amongst other, the Medical Schemes Act needs to be changed. And that only goes once the NHR bill has been proclaimed. So that has to be changed. And then in the interim, we do believe that there are a number of societies, organizations like medical schemes, like Business South Africa, that will go to the constitutional court, challenging the constitutionality of the NHR bill. I mean, I think we all we all in favor of universal health care. That's absolutely non-negotiable. We do believe every South African citizen and resident, permanent resident, should have access to universal health care. But you don't need the NHI to get universal health care. I mean, universal health care really means that more people have access to treatment um, at an acceptable rate or free for the low-income earners or unemployed. But you don't need NHI to achieve that. And I think this is what people don't understand. 
Gary, what steps are or should medical benefits companies be taking right now to prepare then for what you are suggesting is an inevitable integration into the system? Well, Jeremy, I mean, as the NHR bill states at the moment, which is fairly vague, it says that any private medical scheme will not be able to offer the same benefits as the NHI offers. So a medical scheme will only be able to offer top-up benefits. But as I said, um, I don't believe that that will happen for at least another seven to 10 years um, because the medical schemes bill clearly states as well that the medical scheme will not be able to offer that on full implementation. Now, we don't even know what full implementation means because there is so much to clarify and to basically put in place before the NHR bill will be implemented in full. So that's why, once again, I think people should make sure that they don't cancel their medical scheme at the moment, that I do believe that corporate South Africa should try and get more of their staff covered um, to, to alleviate the pressure of the, the failing public health care system at the moment. So at least employed people do have access to, to, to some form of private health care in South Africa. Down the line, though, of course, uh, everybody is concerned about added cost. Well, I think we might see uh, as soon as the budget um, next week that the Minister of Finance will remove the tax credits, which will be a huge impact on, on the middle income sector of South Africa again, because that basically does assist in making private health care affordable. And that will be, I think, a bad move from the government's perspective, because, as I said, they're not ready to to roll out uh, the NHR bill and let people retain their private health care cover for as long as possible. So that's one thing that we anticipate could happen, as I said, as soon as next week. Um, but there, there are a host of different elements that the government will have to um, address and basically ensure that they put in place before any change can take place to the private health care that um, the, the number of South Africans have at the moment. Jeremy, if you just think about it, um, there are about 1.5 million people in South Africa that are not on a medical scheme, but do still make use of private health care. And those people are like doctors, dentists, who basically make use. They, don't, they prefer to self-fund their private health care. They're not on a medical scheme. Now, those people will not be able to make use of private health care should the NHR bill be implemented in the way that it's tabled at the moment. Because it says clearly that you will not be able to use any form of private health care for the services provided by the NHR bill. And that's going to create another huge debate from, from, from those people uh, as well. It's not only the private health care members that are going to be compromised, but it's people that op have the funding to afford private health care at the moment, which will not be able to will not be accessible. All right, Gary Feldman, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Obviously, ball in the minister's court. And let's see what emerges at uh, come budget time uh, in uh, at the end of uh, at the end of February. Just uh, before we go on our poll Friday, I asked you how you rated President Ramaphosa's Sona speech. Uh, pass, fail or I've stopped caring. And uh, just over 60 percent of those who responded to the poll said they've simply stopped caring. Today we're going to ask you about electricity, stage six pain and anxiety. And uh, my question to you is, do you believe that government has a handle on load shedding right now? Yes, no, 
or look at my new solar panels. If you've got a view on that, go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page. I'll bring you the results of the poll tomorrow. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. We're then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.